2: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is the weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel, two of my favorite experts, Lucy and Linnea, are back. Returning to the roundup, Politicology fan favorite, Linnea Erickson. Linnea is the senior vice president for social policy and politics at Third Way, Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, it's great to see you. Welcome back.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited. And can I just say happy birthday to Katie because it is my partner's birthday today.
2: Happy birthday, Katie. Also returning to the Roundup, Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, great to see you as always. Come back.
0: Good to see both of you. I have no birthdays to celebrate, so I'll go all in on celebrating Katie's.
2: On this week's Roundup, the killing of Tyra Nichols and the renewed push for policing reform. Then we'll discuss the Oval Office meeting of President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy as they begin formal talks on raising the debt limit. And then we'll discuss a new piece in The Atlantic about how our constant need for entertainment has blurred the line between fiction and reality on television, and across our political lives. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss a piece in the New York Times about whether and how long Democrats can hold together the new Vote Blue No Matter Who coalition. If you want to pull up a chair and join us for that, a Politicology Plus subscription gets you the private and ad-free version of the show with additional episodes that aren't on the public version. There are two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com plus. And that gets you a link you can use to listen in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to The Politicology Show and tap the button there that says Try Free. We'll dig in right after this. Last Friday, the Memphis Police Department released graphic body cam footage of a January 7th traffic stop that led to the beating and death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. According to the New York Times, Tyree Nichols was kicked at least twice in the face, beaten three times with a baton, sprayed in the face twice with a chemical, and punched in the head six times in the span of three minutes. About four minutes after the beating, two medics arrived on the scene, but took 16 minutes before they provided aid. Nichols was taken to a hospital and died three days later. An autopsy revealed that he had suffered excessive bleeding caused by a severe beating. All five police officers who were involved were fired and were charged last week with second-degree murder and kidnapping, among other charges. The Memphis police chief, C.J. Davis, described the incident as heinous, reckless, and inhumane. Friday evening, there were numerous mostly peaceful protests in cities across the country, including in Memphis, New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. At Nichols' funeral on Wednesday... His mother, Ravaugh Wells and Vice President Kamala Harris both called for Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. The Washington Post also called for Congress to pass police reform legislation. Negotiations over that bill broke down late in the summer of 2021 after then Rep Karen Bass and Senators Cory Booker and Tim Scott spent months negotiating. And uh, here we are, uh, again. Uh, it's worth noting that um, at the same time... Democrats in the Senate called a Republican bluff when when Tommy Tuberville offered a non-binding budget amendment that would block federal funds from any municipalities that defunded their police departments during an overnight votorama. Lene, I think that was the votorama you mentioned working on at the time, and that, that and that was that was a really important move because it was an inoculation against Republicans being able to use that claim against Democrats in the upcoming. Uh, midterms, so I want to start with you, and why don't we why don't we flash back to the negotiations over that bill, and maybe you can sort of bring us up to speed on what the status of federal police reform is since those negotiations broke down.
1: Absolutely, you know, the House, when it was under Democratic control, um, passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and every single Democrat voted for it. Um, so it wasn't one of those, um, you know, a handful of mod Dems break off the bill kind of things. It, we were united um, and the, and they passed it and then threw it over to the Senate. The Senate, we know, uh, with the 60 vote threshold is where things go to die. And that is, in fact, what happened in the last Congress. So. I think what was the most impressive part of that negotiation was that Karen Bass, the Congressional Black Caucus, and Hakeem Jeffries, who were really running, um, you know, the, the Democratic side of that negotiation, were truly open to compromise. You know, they realized that this is an issue on which you can, you know, pass some reforms and then come back and pass more. And then come back and pass more, and that is in fact what we've seen in the states and and localities that have done this. It's that it's not one and done. It's not um, the kind of compromise that you see as kind of like an off ramp, and now we don't ever have to do anything again. Um, so they were really open to whatever the Republicans would accept. Is it just banning no knock warrants? You know, is it just? making a national list of, um, you know, convicted bad actor, police officers, so they don't go from one jurisdiction to the next. They were open to any of it. And unfortunately, you know, Tim Scott was the one leading the negotiations on the Republican side. He walked away. And it happened right around the same time that the Republicans were moving from immigration to crime as their big attack. And I, you know, so I suspect that Mitch McConnell went to Tim Scott and was like, Knock it off! Like we don't want to look like we're doing anything on this. We're, we want to turn the crime issue on uh, Democrats. We want to blame policing reform in blue states for the fact that the crime uh, rates are going up. Um, and and he walked away, and it was so frustrating because you know the press really covered it as a disagreement about qualified immunity which is the hardest part of of this um negotiation politically but it didn't need to be that way qualified immunity didn't even need to be in the package you know they could have come back for that later and the republicans just decided that they you know would rather have the issue than do anything about it and you know that that's what happened last time so now flash forward now we have insurrectionist Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the House. Like, he's not going to do anything about this. Are you kidding me? Like, anything that they would do c- could be used as a fodder to say Republicans are defunding the police. Like, this is not going to happen in, in our current political environment. Even if the Senate got to, you know, some kind of a deal, it would die in the House because Kevin McCarthy knows that um, if he works with Democrats on anything— um, he will have one of his members call for a, uh, a no confidence vote on his speakership. And he doesn't have enough folks in his caucus who care about this at all. Um, and, and so, you know, it's there's just no path forward. So I do hope... Um, on the upside that, um, you know, folks in Memphis uh, may be able to do things on the local level, may be able to do things on the state level. Maybe it'll spur some action, um, you know, in, in those places. But I just don't see a path in this Congress for any progress at the national level.
2: Lucy, I, there's two things I want to hear your thoughts on. One is When I mentioned qualified immunity, which seems to seems to me to be you know a a, a, not a policy person me not a policy person, but qualified immunity seems to be like the big you know eight hundred pound gorilla in the criminal justice reform uh, room, and this is something that libertarians have been behind uh, repealing for a long time. The Cato Institute has sort of famously been a champion on this for like twenty years or something, uh, maybe twenty five years. I wonder if can you give us a little bit of an insight into where Republicans stand on qualified immunity with, you know, with the libertarians being so vocal on it? Why is this such an intractable problem? Um, and then, and then maybe, is there something that Democrats could learn from a federalist, uh, push to get more state and local stuff done that doesn't rely on Congress here?
0: Well, I didn't know I was going to be taking such a lovely walk down memory lane this morning, (laughs) but I'll tell you one of the biggest problems and people may not like to hear it, but one of the biggest problems is police unions. Police unions are a massive problem in getting us over the line with, with police, with reform of policing. Um, you know, police unions consistently, they are a massive lobby. Uh, they are huge, huge funders of campaigns, Canada campaigns. And there used to be clearer lines on the Republican side between kind of law and order Republicans and then people who were less warm to police unions. But over and over again, even in, you know, Republicans hold themselves out as the big union reform types, right? They're, they don't do policy anymore either. But let's say in, the, in those halcyon days of a decade or so ago, like the, the Scott Walker era, right? Or the Mitch Daniels when we, era. When we
2: debated policy.
0: Right. <laughs> you know, people like Scott Walker, uh, then governor of Wisconsin, or Mitch Daniels, then governor of Indiana, you know, states with historically sort of tr- strong union culture, they were going to go in and bust up the unions. Those Republicans consistently always, always exempted public safety unions, right? And police unions are very powerful, not only as a federal lobby, but also at the state level. And one of the things that is a dynamic that exists in state legislatures is that police unions come in and they say things like, you know, we are the people running to gunfights, keeping you safe, all this stuff. And what are, when the, on the other side of the, of the debate, you know, argument is a person who's in an, in an, in a, in a, uniform, right? It's it's very compelling and very it's a very challenging narrative. There are also police unions, just so people understand, in my view, they are fundamentally incompatible with policing. There have been these, because it means that essentially you create a culture in which the employees, the police, basically are bound to a union and the union is bound to them as opposed to the people that they are trying to protect or the, you know, people who are people like Tyree Nichols. So in there have been these horrible and this isn't new, there have been horrible episodes like this where there was a, a killing in Brooklyn maybe ten years ago where where it was a a shooting where the officer was just like confused about who the suspect was, and he killed an innocent guy walking through his apartment building, and the police officer in that situation literally phoned his police union rep before he called nine one one to get backup to have someone come and try to resuscitate this man that he had just shot in the chest, and this was this was was re- recounted by his partner who said that before the first thing that this police officer said, I think it was in the killing of Akil Gurley. We could look it up. The first thing that this officer said is, I think I'm going to be fired, right? Not, oh my God, I've just sh- shot a human and he's now bleeding out on the ground. So obviously I get quite passionate about this, but the police union Factor Here is so crucial because there are all these other downstream effects of this, not just qualified immunity, which is like, again, as you say, the gorilla, but it's uh, body cameras, right? It's all kinds of things about uh, officer, uh, you know, retraining, right? Like release time. And so I think we have to be able to address who the lobbies are who are preventing us from actually having meaningful reform. Police unions have no incentive for um, police forces to, you know, like take away money and funding from police officers and divert it to you know, mental health intervention or other types of forms of de-escalation. It is a it is a truly, truly dysfunctional dynamic.
2: Yeah, it it also occurs to me perhaps that we ought to give a sort of 30-second explanation of what qualified immunity is, what it means, where it came from because when as I understand it, right, this is a a doctrine uh that has been sort of fabricated out of whole cloth by the court essentially that if you if one were to take a strictly textualist approach to the statute it originates from which is our civil rights legislation uh, that you would never have had this theory in the first place, and also um, it has now sort of metastasized from uh, protecting uh, just sort of uh, one class of you know police officers, but but actually serves as a blanket protection for any public official now at large. So can can you uh, maybe I've gotten some of that wrong again? I'm not a lawyer, but can you help listeners access? Uh, maybe this, the 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 thorniness of this problem.
1: Absolutely, you know, it it does stem out of this idea that if an official is in their public capacity in and they are doing their job, um, they shouldn't be able to be sued all the time just for essentially doing their job, right? But that's very different than saying uh, if you you know shoot someone in the chest, which is not the job of police officers, that um, and even if you know a reasonable person would have never done that in that job you're still protected from litigation. Um, You know, so this is all about civil litigation. It's not about whether they can be charged with a crime or any of that. Um,
2: which these officers these, are being charged Thank with, God right? um,
1: Memphis acted quickly. Yeah. These officers have been fired and they have been charged with crimes. Um, this is about whether the um, victims of police violence or their families can get um, whole through. I mean, you can never get whole, but can get some recompense through the civil litigation system. Um, and the doctrine has been blown way out of proportion. There's case law that basically says, you know, anything a police officer does ever, is, they, they can't really be Sued. And so, um, you know, they basically what the court asks is um, whether the official violated a constitutional right. And whether the conduct of that official um, uh, was obviously illegal, whether it was clearly established is the test that it was illegal. I would say shooting an innocent person in the chest is pretty obviously established that it was illegal. But the way that the courts have interpreted that is to say, has this exact set of facts happened before exactly this way with like the people whose names are the same on this same block and it was this exact officer, um, which is is crazy, right? Like you should be able to know. Un- un-
2: completely ridiculous. Yeah. That should
1: this officer knew that shooting someone in the chest that was not in fact a suspect or a threat uh, was illegal. Um, and that should be clearly established. Um, so that that's really the problem we have here. I will say, um, people often talk about qualified immunity reform as if it's black and white. Like, do we have it or do we not? Um, but what I've just outlined is actually, uh, as you said, a metastasized version of this policy. You don't have to say, it, we just won't have it at all, or we will. Um, You can do what Colorado did, actually, and say, oh, we are actually going to allow victims to sue, um, but uh, only up to a certain amount, and maybe the Um, the town, um, or the police department will help to pay whatever damages, like there are lots of ways that you can make this very reasonable. Um, but to, and, and, you know, deal with whatever criticisms that people have about, you know, police officers having to worry about being sued for things that they're doing. Um, but to Lucy's point, we can't even have a sensible conversation about that because of the unions. And I will tell you, On the Hill, as we're behind the scenes talking, you know, doing these negotiations, that is what all of the staff talk about. They're like, our local police union called and said, don't effing do this. Don't do it like we heard it in every single office we talked to. So I, I think that, you know, that is, um, that is absolutely the the problem. And also what's so messed up about it, it. I totally agree with Lucy is it, that is not compatible with public safety, right? Because this union's job is to argue for the, the police officers, no matter what the circumstances, if, you know, Donald Trump was in the police union and he did his thing where he goes and shoots someone in the face in Times Square, his police union would stand behind him because that's literally their job. So that doesn't make sense in in the way that we set up public safety. And it it is absolutely the political problem, um, both with Republicans and also with Democrats who don't want to be on the wrong side of this. Um, There's also a very related problem in immigration with the border patrol unions, um and there's also a very huge problem um with the prison guard unions there's you know this is kind of systemic across um different you know places that we have public safety in i think we have to have a conversation about um you know what that means if if a prisoner dies in custody um you know what that union is going to defend the prison guard no matter what they did no matter what they did
2: and that just and we can't could, be how we operate. Did it, it can't be how we do life here. Yeah, no. I mean, you, you you could also you know enter the teachers' unions and their role in slowing down or stopping reopenings and during COVID, like that was also a go ahead, Lucy. But
0: it's so much worse than any other public sector union mm-hmm. because one, police unions get this super special treatment. But the other thing is that police have guns that they can yeah. use, right? You know, there are not. You can you can of course I think that the, the the education reform issue is super complicated and it is certainly made more complicated by the power of teachers' unions. But the 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 power the the, the myth of the, the just endless power of teachers unions is greatly exaggerated relative to, for example, police unions. And police unions Police have guns. Police, they they can shoot their guns, right? They can put people in uh, handcuffs, right? Like the the power that they have. It's so obvious that to me that that kind of role in particular, where we are giving someone the the power to wield lethal force, right? It means that we have to be willing to acknowledge that different standards apply to how they get represented. It doesn't mean that they don't have representation or that they don't have due process, but the, the paradigm that we're operating in now is the kind of paradigm that we've operated in for more than a decade, for a long time. And, and so every new story like this, for people who've been involved in public policy that touches police unions, it feels just like an endless cycle. It's just over and over and over again
2: so maybe let's just wrap this segment with well i'm kind of scared to ask but if is there from that previous round of negotiations and maybe let's see from the from the standpoint of you know republicans if they actually cared about policy is there anything that there's a majority for to do anything on police reform regardless of whether you know of course it's got to get to the floor for a vote first right but is there actual substantive agreement on what ought to be done not on anything?
0: Well, Lene Lin- would know better than I because she's so in the thick of it. But I, I think it's worth noting that... <sighs> everyone's favorite senator from Kentucky, Rand Paul, at various points, has, for example, gotten in touch with his own uh, C- Cato-adjacent roots and has um, pushed legislation to end no-knock warrants. So there are some bright spots there. I think that some of the provisions that are le- less sexy and quite wonky in a lot of these um, in these bills, like provisions around um, – uniform um crime statistics reporting uh it, some of those things or or things like a national registry of bad apple cops some of those things seem to me like things that people could come to the table on that 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 could be meaningful the the uniform crime statistics piece is that it's very hard to even know not only just sort of what actual crime statistics are but but what police incidents are right because there's no standardization in how law enforcement agencies report this and and they dial those those statistics up or down depending on what suits the the agenda of their of their uh leadership so so you know Lenae is in the thick of this work but it's um I think there's some things that are less sexy that actually maybe <laughs>
1: Could get a yeah.
2: hearing. What do you say? Renee? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think the transparency pieces are um, really big, and I think, frankly, if you took um, most of the provisions in the Justice and Policing Act and um, were able to do them by secret ballot, they would pass. <laughs> it's really just the the posturing that is standing in the way of almost all of these things, um, but that's you know secret ballot is not how Congress works, so that's hard. I will say that um, what gives me hope because I I do think we need to have some hope in this really really hard week um, is that. Um, The the movement and the leaders in Congress who really want to push um, you know for change here are open to whatever change folks will take, and I think that that is the recipe for getting at least something done. Now again, I don't think that this Congress is necessarily where we're going to get it, but you know when the gun safety movement came to, you know, John Cornyn and a bunch of folks last summer and said, what will you pass? Okay. You won't do background checks. You won't do assault, assault weapons ban. What will you pass? Um, that is a posture that they can, they can work with, right? And too often, the movements are in a place of, um, you know, it has to be exactly the text of the Women's Health Protection Act or nothing. It has to be exactly, you know, the the immigration reform we want um, with absolutely no money for border security or nothing. Um, and that, you know, posture of, okay, let's talk. What are you willing to do is where we can start. And so I think, you know, hopefully we can continue to build that conversation so that in the next Congress, you know, if if Democrats are able to take back the House, which they should be able to do, uh, we might be able to actually get something done.
2: So abandon the compromise's weakness mentality. On Wednesday, Speaker Kevin McCarthy met with President Biden in the Oval Office to discuss raising the debt limit. We've talked about this now for a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> they didn't walk away with a solution. They met for an hour. Um, McCarthy did say the meeting was productive. Uh, he hopes they can reconcile their differences before the deadline. Um, we've now passed the debt limit. Uh, Secretary Janet Yellen is using extraordinary measures to pay the government's bills. Uh, last time we talked about this, I reminded listeners I will remind them again that this crisis is entirely manufactured. <laughs> this is a fight over whether to pay bills we've already we've already accumulated like insert all of the same tired uh, disclaimers about debt limit fights because this isn't actually about uh cutting spending. Um, however, the idea of cutting spending, just that top line idea is wildly popular with the American people until of course you ask them what they want to cut. And then that support breaks down. So what's happening here is a manufactured crisis that has political benefit for, um, Republicans for the moment, except the quote unquote leader of the quote unquote fiscal conservatives insert laugh track, (laughs) uh, cannot get his own house in order, uh, and they don't know what they want. So here we are, um, uh, Biden in the White House saying we're not going to negotiate with fiscal terrorists, and Kevin McCarthy saying, "Well, I don't know what our demands are yet, and give me a little time to like figure that out." Um, so this is this is this is where we sit, um, and, and it's just you know it would be funnier if it weren't so tragic, and uh, I don't really want to spend a ton of time talking about it, except that it is extraordinarily consequential if we do actually. Uh, you know, go over the cliff, of course, um, as we have done once before. Uh, so, Lene, ugh, I don't know, I don't know, really, what to talk about here, except whether or not, um, whether or not we're going to go over the cliff, or how should we expect the lack of a consensus in the Republican Conference to to shape the negotiations? Where, do, we, we, how does this proceed from your perspective?
1: Uh, not well. <laughs> Um yeah because
2: not well for the american people for well. sure
1: <laughs> because you know first of all i think the biden administration learned the lesson from uh the obama administration it, of which biden was a part um that negotiating um with the debt ceiling is a bad idea like we just need to pay our bills we've already rung them up we got to pay them um and so their stance right now is we're not negotiating this is not we're not negotiating with terrorists. And on the other side, as you point out, the people who want to negotiate the terrorists, uh, they don't know what they want. They're literally like holding people hostage and they're like, uh, yes, yeah, sorry. We need to have like a meeting to figure out what it is we want, but we're just going to keep these people here for, you know, uh, whatever amount of time that it takes to, for us to figure out what we want. <laughs> so that does not bode well. I think there are some, in the kind of like our initial never kevin um group that um you know say that they want less spending but even they don't know on what you know i mean like they did some of them maybe want to cut some military spending but well, i mean that's not going to happen like the whole bunch of the rest of them would die before letting that happen uh you know do they want to cut social security to all the old people who vote for them like I just don't understand what it is they're trying to do here they can't identify what those spending cuts would be of um and so it's it's a total mess but the thing that makes me the the scaredest about this and I've I've been scared about this for a long time is thinking about what happened last time, you know, and John Boehner was speaker last time. um, And, and, you know, as as many bad things as I had to say at the time about John Boehner, he's a person that cared uh, at a baseline level, whether he was going to completely trash the US economy. um, So that was good. And at the time, McCarthy was the whip. And so he was the one that had to go around and get all of his other Republican friends um, to, or get enough of them to vote for the ultimate package deal that came across. but I was listening to a great podcast about Kevin McCarthy, and how he made his own bed in this like horrible, um, you know, position he's now in, where he's uh, he, he's held hostage to Marjorie Taylor Green. Um, and I was reminded of the fact that McCarthy, the Whip, who pressured all these people to vote for it, then went down and voted against the deal because he was posturing. <laughs> and John Boehner looked at him and was like, "What the f?" But he knew that he had just enough votes. That he had convinced just enough of his colleagues that he could then uh, not vote for a deal that would not be popular with Republican primary voters, and and so he would he like took, you know, put his own air mask on before oxygen mask before he helped anybody else. And he was like, no, I'm voting no, I'm all good. Uh, So that's insane. I don't understand why people don't trust this guy. And yeah. And all the rest of his colleagues were like, really, dude? But um, so that doesn't bode well for him being the person that's now supposed to figure this out.
0: Or does it? Or does it? Because does it mean that he's such Again, such an empty vessel that he does how whatever the wind blows, and when things get really bad, Americans ultimately start not liking uh, the <laughs> uh, the the kind of hard line on the debt ceiling. So the 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 challenge is, of course, that there are super 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 dire consequences of not doing anything about this. Like, for example, uh, in an earlier chapter, when the country's uh, credit rating. <laughs> was downgraded yes right <laughs> so these are really really real consequences and and he also has put really hardcore wackos on the rules committee right so there are these other sort of um pieces of 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 how this even gets to the floor right that are obstacles that are different than in other. so he he has certainly set it up for a, something hairy
2: Lucy, I am somebody who is um, saddened, distressed by the fact that, you know, fiscal conservatism has so dramatically fallen out of favor within the Republican. Like, it's just not even a thing anymore. No, you can't say that with a straight face about Republicans. We we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I just wonder how you see the extremely consequential topic of debt and deficits and spending now and. Everything is always like the sky is falling. Cut, cut everything, or you know, or or not. It's it's all or nothing. It's always all or nothing, and there doesn't seem to be any appetite among anybody to actually sit down and look at. Well, we're spending a lot of money, thirty one trillion dollars in debt. That's not a small number, right? That there's no, there's nobody who seriously is concerned about the 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 numbers anymore. So I just wonder how you see that if if we're ever going to get back to that, or do we really have to break something hard before we? We know we, we sit down at the table and recognize that, you know, this at some point we will reach a tipping point and servicing the debt will cost us way more than it will. It's called a debt spiral, right? We, now the interest costs us so much that we are now having to cut spending on things because we can't afford it anymore, not because we have the leisure to. So I, I wonder if, if, if you see us ever reaching that point before an emerg- a real emergency happens.
0: Reaching that point, yes. Reaching that point outside of a dire uh, c- circumstance, emergency, no. So I think it would be, uh, uh, I think that we could get to that point in a financial meltdown uh, scenario in which we basically finally had to pay the piper and had to take extraordinary measures that that other countries have taken at times, like austerity measures and and the kinds of measures that no one wants to see. I also think... Nobody that,
2: wants to sell no. so austerity measures no. either.
0: And I think that uh, in general, and and I say this as a person who worked on this issue, oh gosh, 15 years ago, in the, the heyday of the kind of Tea Party ascendancy, I worked on national mm. debt issues. Um, everything we're talking about today is like, just like same as it ever was. kind of <laughs> you know, to go like take a plunge in cold water after this. and just sort of like reset. But I think that even then when there were Republicans who cared about fiscal conservatism and it was it was a, a centerpiece, I think that the public was really poorly served by the messaging tactics that 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 group used because this is not like that everyone falls into these analogies of like well imagine if your family of four had a gazillion dollars in debt would you get a new would you like should a should a bank issue you a new credit card this stuff that those are actually not analogous at all right and and this issue is really complicated and so people think of it just as a that oh it's like a a big version of my having you know, my having debt, credit card debt, student loan debt, whatever, and it's not like that, right? Because the way that we stave this off, as a country, is something that individual people don't have. Individual people don't just make more money to like print more money for themselves, <laughs> right? Yep. And those are the kinds of things that we do in our in our government, right? And and that actually yeah. has a bunch of downstream effects. Around our daily lives and the value of our dollars, that because right. I think we've so mis messaged on this issue, people don't make the connection. And it's hard, but there is has no one has made a, a very clear and concise case that someone could take in and understand in a, you know, in a in a 90 second YouTube video to understand that actually there are all kinds of downstream ramifications all the time of this continued um lack of confrontation over this issue.
1: I mean, Lucy's so right. I remember like watching a ton of focus groups on this stuff in, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, because it was the the heyday of this conversation. And there were at least some policymakers on the stage who did legitimately want to have a conversation about spending cuts. Yeah. And uh, it, it, everybody compared it to their household budget. It was always like, if I can't pay my credit card bill, then I shouldn't buy a new TV. And it's like, <laughs> it's a little more complicated <laughs> than that. But I mean, but the what I always kept um, thinking about was like, the the <laughs> the big problem here is the baby boomers are getting old. So now they're all on Social Security and Medicare, which they all think they've paid into enough to cover their own expenses. But that's a lie. (laughs) They are going to be paid more money through Social Security and Medicare than they ever paid in. And we don't have the young people to continue to keep the Ponzi scheme going (laughs) to pay in to then pay pay for these baby boomers and they're all like no but I paid in and so it's you know that's what's perpetuated. and nobody, <laughs> nobody wants nobody to, wants tell, to them tell them the them truth that, like you're charging way way more than you paid in it's not like you put that in a bank account and now you're coming back for your savings account we rely on young people to pay for the old people and we don't have as many young people now um so you know that's that's what's running up our bill well they don't want to talk about that. They're the ones that are, you know, getting their social security and Medicare. And, they, and again, a lot of them are voting for Republicans.
2: So Republicans don't really want to talk about that either. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention that the dollars they paid in are now worth like fractions <laughs> of what too. they were worth when they paid them in. So there's that That's too. Right.
0: That's right. It's so funny because in that time, like around 2010-ish, right? I just, I remember that all of the Republicans were in theory on board with the balanced budget amendment, but the argument around the edges were things like, "What percentage of you know, like, what should what percentage of GDP should we set the spending ceiling at? Like, should it be should it be you know, like Bob Goodlatte wants it to be twenty percent, but like David Schweiker wants it to be eighteen percent, and how do we reconcile those things? That's so funny now, right? Like that's crazy. I know. I know.
2: Nobody no, nobody cares now." Uh, okay. Well, uh, this was, this was useful. I think we gave people a little bit of an insight into this, but the the, the takeaway really is like, Republicans are just just idiots. (laughs) They're just, this is just like fucking stupid. (laughs) Like this is, this is absolutely performative bullshit. They're not going to get anything done here. And by the way, this is not the way to have a conversation about spend. You know what? Talk about waste and fraud and abuse in the federal budget. Why don't you tr- start there? Why don't you go audit the goddamn Pentagon <laughs> and find out about like I don't know, there are so many other ways to approach this than just a, you know, what is very obviously a uh a grassroots fundraising
1: Uh, Let me just give you one more vignette about this, though, on that. Like everybody thinks waste. If you got waste, fraud and abuse out of government, we would cut our budget by like 50 percent. We once like people and then they were like, yeah, I think waste, fraud and abuse like we'd get like 50 percent. And we're like, no, it's like. 0.00001 0.00001 and then it's they asked um we asked them to map out like what do you think's in the federal budget and they're like oh it's like foreign aid and like waste fraud and abuse and all these things and then we would show yeah. them the actual fractions and they're like wait what medicare and social security what it was and it would blow their minds so we worked with the obama administration to put together this thing called the um taxpayer receipt um, which uh yes, this which was on I, yes, this is what we should do was on the website. It was a, like a third way like idea. My colleague Dave Kendall was like, we need to tell people what their taxes are going to. <laughs> so ob-
2: I Obama loved this idea, and I had no idea it came from and you guys. Like,
1: and it showed you like 60% goes to Social Security and Medicare, and then this is like for defense, and then foreign aid is less than one percent. And and it was beautiful and absolutely no one looked at it and then it went away cuz obama went away but for a moment it was really really pretty
0: and but- people are so inured to seeing government in their lives right like i saw someone post a thing the other day someone who's a serious thinker or so i thought but you know a a a thinker a person who works in politics who posted something that was like you know, my family my family of four is share of of uh with the dead or whatever is is xyz you know like six figure figure and he's like can anyone honestly say that they've actually like derived that much benefit from the government and i thought absolutely <laughs> yeah. like is
2: this a, oh my god pretort-
0: yes like definitely like <laughs> yeah. i drive on roads I went to public high school, right? Like,
1: like I've I've used these services. Like, I'm I'm not currently being about? invaded by Putin. Like, there's a right, lot exactly. of things. Like, uh, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm
2: vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I I want to come back to the taxpayer receipt because I just think it's a genius idea. So, for another another time, let's find out what happened there. Okay, I want to talk about this piece in The Atlantic. Um, So The Atlantic published a story from their March magazine by Megan Garber about how we're already living in a sort of metaverse. So Garber's main point in this very long piece uh, is that our constant need for entertainment has blurred any distinction between reality and fiction, and that, like in most you uh, know our most famous dystopian fiction books. Amusement has become a means of captivity rather than escape, and like I, I sort of immediately resonated with this. Like recognized it in my own life, in my in my habits, and in my relationship with devices and social media. She writes in the future. George Orwell, uh, Ray Bradbury, and Aldous Huxley warned. We will surrender ourselves to our entertainment. We will become so distracted and dazed by our fictions that we'll lose our sense of what is real. We will make our escape so comprehensive that we cannot free ourselves from them. The result will be a populace that forgets how to think, how to empathize with one another, even how to govern and be governed. That future has already arrived. We live our lives, willingly or not, within the metaverse. Okay. So th- there, she, there's lots of examples. I thought it was, I thought it was a brilliant piece. Um, the thing that it, that sort of led to us putting this in the roundup this week was because it, it made me think of George Santos and here's, and which then she, she it gets to George Santos toward the end of the piece. But, but immediately the concept made me think of George Santos and how like we have all really loved dunking on. George Santos. And the, like, it's a, it's a really, he shouldn't be in Congress. There's no way in Congress. We've talked about the sort of negligence of the campaign. We've talked about, you know, the voters should never, but for all these reasons, George Santos is not a serious person. Um, and yet every new lie that comes out, right. And I think I mentioned this at some point, like the density of his lies is so much higher than even Donald Trump's lies were at the time that he was in office. If you really consider that, but every new one that comes out, it's, nobody's surprised everybody is entertained and the meme machine just goes crazy. And it's great. We all have a good time. We pop our popcorn and we're like, Oh, of course this, of of course this is, he lied about this thing. And it just occurred to me that George Santos's value is, is he's, he's entertaining because he's just so bad of a person, of a candidate, of a politician. Um, And, and he's, probably more well-known than most of his colleagues now at this point. And so I was like, oh my God, she's nailed it. Like we're, this is all about entertainment. We talk about the performativeness of politics now, but we don't really acknowledge very often just how entertained we are by the experience of consuming this content. And so I, um, I can't wait to hear what you guys thought about this piece and what you think about the thesis in general. Lucy, why don't you go first?
0: It's interesting because when you talk about George Santos, one of the things that makes him such a unique pathological liar is how all in he was on leaving a trail of lies. He's like so online. This week, Rolling Stone posted his old karaoke clips, right? Like George... George Santos, I mean, there, there's a, there apparently was a website that doesn't really exist anymore where you could go on and record karaoke clips. And George Santos was, he himself was participating in everything. This isn't like a person who has come on the scene and and you know is fabricating things, and no one can really find anything about him and it's different than that. He was just like there are photos of him, and he's on he's on social with all these so that's a thing that is sort of interesting when you think about the metaverse or people's online lives that part of what we're dismantling is. George Santos' online life and are people's online lives the same as their offline lives? Mm-hmm. I think. And
2: does it doesn't matter?
0: That's right. That's right. I, 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 there was something that she, there was a, in, in the Garber piece in The Atlantic, she referenced an Aldous Huxley line about, you know, the propagandist purpose is to make one set of people forget that certain other sets of people are human and she was talking about our politics and and you were reminding me of this because of the the performance art idea i i heard a i heard a a clip of a of a conversation a, a podcast conversation the other day where two people who are well known and are um adversarial to each other on twitter were recording a conversation with each other and and they said this thing like um well you know yeah, it's important for people to realize that that we hit each other hard on Twitter, but ultimately like we could we're friends and we could go to a bar together and, you know, like have a beer. And it's important for people to understand that social media isn't real life. And I was thinking and they're kind of bat, like patting each other on the back about that. And I thought that's so damaging because one how would people know that even if that were true? But second, that's not a virtue. Like it, it, social media actually kind of is becoming our real life. <laughs> so, uh, you know, carrying on in that way and then expecting people to make the distinction, uh, that's kind of a dangerous idea, actually. And yeah. and this piece, yeah. you I just was thinking about that. I just spoke to someone about this last night. And then I knew we were going to talk about this piece, and I thought, yes, this is the thing that is freaking me out. <laughs> this yeah. is
2: the thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, Lene. By the way, j- just to to reinforce that point, uh, CJ, our producer, and I will often have a conversations where I'll come into an editorial meeting, and I will be just absolutely distressed by the the bullshit that is in my social media feed and the flimsiness of the of the dialogue about almost everything. And and he's like yeah, yeah but stop getting your information from there because that isn't that doesn't actually reflect like what people think about a thing. But it <laughs> does, and, and then and then we fight it, it. But it. But but I think it does. I think it does,
0: especially because and 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 I can't I can't claim credit for this. Actually, I was talking about this with David Jolly, who is a MSNBC contributor and a former Republican member of Congress, and all around great guy and i was complaining about this to david jolly and he said but social media actually like twitter actually does it yes most people aren't on it there are these active users but it actually does reflect real life of the the political influencer class right and so actually when people are like oh twitter is not representative yes it is <laughs> because so much of our dialogue then uh, even on local news cable news whatever Starts to reflect that, and so if if the the stuff happening on Twitter is dangerous and dysfunctional, whatever, that does have a downstream effect to how people interact with their neighbors, you know, down the street.
2: Totally. Yeah, yeah. Lene, what did this bring up for you?
1: <laughs> I mean, so much. But I think um, part of uh, part of it that definitely struck me was around the January 6th stuff, right? Which is um, thinking about um, how many of the folks who are, you know, insurrecting um, were posting it actively on social media while it was happening. Like they were, com- they were streaming committing the insurrection. crimes and they were like, oh, <laughs> hey, look, like I'm making a story. And, um, and one of the things she said in the article was like, those people think that They deserve to be the hero in their own story. And that's what they were telling themselves. And that's what they were curating for their followers was like they were like wearing Trump, you know, flags as a cape. Like they're a fucking superhero, you know, I mean, the the whole thing, um, obviously like that version of it makes me so angry because that was, you know, such a horrific moment that we all witnessed and they're, um, doing it for their followers, um, so that was really scary. But the, the other part that really, you know, kind of made me think was when she was talking about the crown, which I've watched like, you know, uh, one and a half seasons of the crown or something. Right. But, um, <laughs> she said that, uh, the, like, you know, British social agency, blah, blah, asked Netflix to like put up you know, some sort of a disclaimer that says this is fictionalized. This is not a documentary. <laughs> and they refused because they were like, well, I think people know that. And I'm like, I don't think people know that. Like, you went to great lengths to like reenact like historical events around Princess Di. And people are watching it as if this is the historical, you know, rendering of what happened to her. And and you're fictionalizing major parts of it. Um, and I just it it just really kind of took me aback because I I love consuming these things, right? Like I'll I'll watch the um, you know, all 72 documentaries about bad blood and, and the the crazy um person, whatever her name is, Lucy knows what her name is. Elizabeth Holmes. Thank you. I never remember Thank her name. But, <laughs> but I do watch all of those things, right? <laughs> Yeah, and 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 they were like, oh, we can't have these people on the jury because they've seen the quote unquote documentary about this, and so they're getting their information not from this trial, but from the quote unquote documentary. And so am I. So you know, I guess I'm. I live in the metaverse too, and so do the insurrectionists. And it's it's a little creepy.
2: We all do. It it was. um, I mean, listen. You should go listen to this. You can listen to it on autumn you can also read it if you prefer to read things um uh, but you should i I would encourage everybody to go 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 consider the ideas that garber puts here because for me it was like a mirror and i really sort of i saw myself in 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 this in this story and how like i had i especially with the santo stuff right the drag queen pictures the ever like it just was so wild it felt so I, I I was entertained. I am entertained by George Santos. And um, and that was like my window into oh my god, that's we're all actually in this thing. So I I took her point seriously. Anyway, anything else we should cover on this I that, topic? I mean it's a it's a long piece we could talk I for. I think hours, you're totally
1: but, right though, that like yeah. way more people know George Santos's name than Hakeem Jeffrey's name, who is, you know, yeah. Far, far more, more powerful, powerful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, probably more people know Marjorie Taylor Greene's name than Hakeem Jeffrey's name, and and that's a scary thought.
2: Yeah. Oh, and and CJ says, uh, just to be clear, his position is that Twitter is a great barometer for understanding what particular people think about something, but it is not that great of an indicator of public opinion on any amen. given. Topic. Amen. Noted. Uh, amen. <laughs> Okay, now that we're up to speed on a few of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Lucy, why don't you lead off?
0: Well, I am watching the upcoming um, special election slash primary election in Wisconsin on February 21st. So Wisconsin is a knife-sedge state, politically. Um, And I'm mentioning this because it's just a reminder of how much um how consequential aspects of our politics including elections are that we don't pay nearly enough attention to so on february 21st in wisconsin there will be a um a primary election a four-way primary that between two republicans and two democrats for the supreme court the state supreme court and this is really important in a state like wisconsin because the far right <laughs> People running for the Wisconsin Supreme Court want to, are open to things like using the power of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court to overturn elections, right? And we all know that Wisconsin is a very, very important state. Another race that is going on in Wisconsin on February 21st is a primary uh, for a special election for a state Senate district. And that The outcome of that state Senate election, and on the Republican side, the two leading Republicans are are both election deniers, um, the outcome of that state Senate district will determine whether or not the uh, Republicans have a supermajority in the Wisconsin state legislature. And if they have a supermajority, it means that Democratic Governor Tony Evers basically his his power is completely neutered in the next several years and that power is super important because it's also the power to push back against things like election denial. Wisconsin is also a state that doesn't have a secretary of state that overturn, that oversees elections. So Wisconsin has a a a something called the Wisconsin Elections Commission which is basically uh, they they make all the decisions about how elections are run and and they derive their power from the state legislature. And so I mentioned this just to drive home a theme that is like my theme forever and ever and ever, which is how consequential local elections are and how much we don't pay enough attention to them and how we spend so much time anchoring to what's going on in in on Capitol Hill and in Washington, but so much of our politics are impacted by elections that might be occurring in February and April of an odd numbered year when most of us are not paying attention, but people like political extremists and uh, proto-fascist autocrats are paying attention. And so, you know, that's just a snapshot of Wisconsin, but there are elections like this that are going to go on all around the country between now and the presidential election in 2024 so i just mentioned this to urge people to look into the state and local elections going on in their communities where where extremists really make inroads sometimes because a lot of us just aren't paying enough attention
2: i fully co sign so important um Linnea, <laughs> what do, what do you got what you bring today uh, i'll just
1: do a very brief one. But just to say, uh, I think the conventional wisdom is that abortion played really, really well for Democrats in the midterms, um, particularly in in states like Michigan, where it was truly on the ballot. Um, and a lot of f- folks have questioned whether that's going to continue in, in future cycles. Um, and, you know, some folks, uh, smart folks within the Republican Party would say like, hey, maybe let's downplay this a little bit because it didn't seem to really work for us aha not the RNC the RNC came out this week and uh did a new res- resolution um remember this is an RNC that does not have a policy platform they did not have a platform um, last time around because they didn't want policy but they do have this policy now which says the Republican National Committee urges Republican lawmakers and state legislatures in Congress to pass the strongest pro-life legislation possible such as laws that ignore Acknowledge the beating hearts and experiences of pain in the unborn, underscoring the new relics of barbarism the Democratic Party represents as we approach the 2024 cycle. Whoa. So I don't think this is over.
2: I know, Rana's. I really come. think
1: they're going to keep it coming. Rana's all about that base, about that base. There it is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think he just titled the episode. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, uh, let's flip over to Politicology Plus. Uh, we're going to discuss this piece in the New York Times about whether and how long Democrats can hold together the new Vote Blue No Matter Who coalition. It's funny. Uh, that was, I, I was very much part of that coalition in 2020. Um, where can everybody find you on the internet? Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy
1: M. Caldwell.
2: I should say, where can I find you in the metaverse? Yeah, I'm in the metaverse
1: at Linnae Erickson, accessible through Twitter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.